it's really wonderful to be doing this kind of virtual Libri lecture. I finally get to um, talk to so many people around the world. Uh, it's really a loss to not have you in this room. Uh, some of you have been in this very room, in the lecture hall, uh, but some of you haven't, and, uh, and some of you are fond friends, and some of you I don't know well, and, but I'm glad that you're here. Labrie is a place where we really want to engage ideas and welcome people, um, and really welcome people's ideas because we believe that ideas are at the heart of how a human loves and how they are known. And so uh, we know that some people who uh, come to Labrie are Christian and some are not. And we want people to understand their own convictions um, as we investigate the claims of Christ and the claims of the Bible. And so we plan to do that. And so I've been going through the series of Daniel, and I've been going through each of the stories. I've lectured on Daniel 1, Daniel 2, Daniel 3. If you want to check those out, you can lecture, um, look at it on the podcast. But, uh, but today we finally come to the crescendo in the final of this um, series. And really, uh, you'll see how Daniel 6 is this crescendo of this faithful exile who becomes a political leader, and, and we, we get to see uh, about his life. But before I read Daniel 6, uh, I want to talk a little bit about my methodology, uh, because I've been trying to do this a bit differently. And so uh, Karl Barth, over 100 years ago, was exhorting these seminarians uh, as they left the seminary to read the Bible in one hand and to read the uh, newspaper in the other hand. Uh, with the Bible interpreting uh, the news. Now, the Bible is very relevant to understand cultural events. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean that we should try to figure out the name or the time to, to figure out the end times. That's not what I'm suggesting. Um, I'm making no mention either way of that. My point is that how might we use Scripture as a lens in which to interpret cultural issues and to know how we might live in it now faithfully? And so that's what I've been doing with Daniel 6. And so what we see is that these ancient stories actually have a lot of cultural relevance. And uh, I think you'll be uh, quite surprised and hopefully pleased and helped by what we do through Daniel 6. So now I'm going to read Daniel 6 before I turn to an introduction of Daniel 6 and what my lecture will be about. So this is about Daniel in the midst of the Persian kingdom. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel, with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. 
Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have, none, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them, overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's a powerful text. And uh, it's typically something that we hear at Sunday school. And uh, the kids, you know, draw pictures of lions and these types of things and color them in. And usually the story is forgotten. But this story is seemingly simple but it's actually very complex and it has lots of political intrigue. It's about how God's people um, are trying to seek the welfare of society 
in the midst of a nation that wants to reject their faith? How might God's people seek the welfare of society in a society that wants to diminish or to, um, to negate their faith? Uh, especially as they're trying to figure out how to be faithful in a culture that is idolatrous. How can they seek the welfare of society and not ensnared by its idolatry? And I think that's a question for us. So we're going to look at this uh, passage in three parts. Uh, I've broken up into part one, godly excellence. The, the second part is going to be uh, political antagonism. And then the final part will be God's verdict. And so those are basically the three scenes that we follow um, in this narrative. And I'm going to look at the passage. And then uh, and we, and I'm going to have you look at the passage while I'm talking about the passage, uh, giving highlights and notes about the passage. And then I'm going to break from the passage and have some reflections on how we might apply this culturally. How might we think about it um, today? And how might it help us to see our role in a society that in many ways in all around the world uh, diminish um, or want to deny our, our, Christians, our Christian convictions. So let's look at, um, so I'm going to look at those three parts. And then finally, I'm going to give some final exhortations at the very end. You have verses one through five, and that's really the first scene that I'm, I'm entitling Godly Excellence really how we might see this passage as pointing to how Christians can excel by following God faithfully in society. And so it's interesting that this story in Daniel, Daniel 6, is actually where most other of the Daniel stories ended. Uh, it's, it was a rags to riches story, and that Daniel went from exile to political leader. And so you, you see his rise through these events of interpreting dreams or um, um, or being tested and proven faithful. But here the story begins with him in leadership. I, I think about it as like, kind of like those love stories that you, you see people, you know, they meet one another and maybe they, they break up with the person that they don't like. The colors are dull, music isn't very good, but when they get together, the colors are bright um, and everything is harmonious. And then at the very end, they, they get together, but you're kind of left with the question, well, then what? <laughs> Will they break up or something like that? You always have this kind of then what? Well, you've seen Daniel move through this foreign occupation, which is antagonistic to Christianity They have, or antagonistic to Judaism. They have just conquered Israel. Uh, they brought in some of the, uh, the, the royal pedigree. Uh, Daniel was probably someone of the royal pedigree of Judah. And he is brought in. And he's in exile, but he somehow makes it to political leadership. And you wonder at the end of some of those stories, well, how did he handle that? How did he handle being a political leader in the midst of a society um, or, um, or a nation that was oppressive to him, oppressive to his religion? Well, Daniel 6 is the then what story. Uh, it gives you one example um, before it leads into this visions. And so that's why Daniel 6 is really a crescendo of these uh, five, six stories. Obviously, Daniel, six, six stories, okay. <clears throat> um, usually when I'm hilarious, you all laugh back, but I can't hear you since you're muted. But I'll assume laughter is plenty. So uh, first thing is the satraps. 
Now, the satraps are these regional directors. We don't use this word satraps, but they were regional directors in each of these um, geographical uh, locations, and they were to make sure that they had um, the people pay tribute to the king. Um, they were make, make sure that they gave their resources or their crops or whatever it was to the king, and then also probably some taxes on top of that. And so really these people were the insurance um, or the, the tax men that would go out. And so you have Daniel at the top of that. He's in fact the leader of the three officials who oversees to make sure that the king might suffer no loss. And so you might think of Daniel as the head of the revenue service um, of the IRS, the CRA or whatever country you're in, but he's, he's the guy who's the head of the treasury for the state or for the nation, the kingdom. And so, uh, but you see that it expresses here that he had an excellent spirit. Now this is a reference to Daniel 5 verse 14, where it said that God had given him this spirit, that he would have wisdom and insight and understanding. And so you see that it's speaking of the excellence that God has given him through his spirit, uh, through God's spirit, to give him an understanding of revelation through the dreams that uh, God had given these pagan kings. But also it, it, you have to assume and you see here by um, evidence of Darius's approval and, uh, and Daniel excelling in Persia is that he must have had this leadership skills. And he also he was probably a good accountant. Um, he took good care of the books and made sure that all the sums were nice and tidy and in such a degree that there was no loss, that the king would suffer no loss. And so you see that this excellence of spirit is not only Daniel's faithfulness to God, but also his faithfulness to the king and to the kingdom. Um, and so <clears throat> when by Daniel being faithful to God's spirit, he blesses society. And that's how it works. Um, yet this stirs a deep-seated anger. These other political leaders are upset at Daniel. Um, and so his excellence is uh, causing the kingdom to flourish, the king to do well, but it's also causing a deep-seated anger and causes an antagonism against him. Presumably because these people, um, you know, perhaps they're like politicians who go to Bermuda, they do a couple of work emails and then write it off or maybe they go um, have an extra extravagant meal because you know they're making political alliances across the floor, this type of thing, and they write it off. And Daniel's coming in and saying, no, no, no more trips to Bermuda, no more trips to um, uh, the nice restaurants. And so there's antagonism uh, toward Daniel's close accounting, that he's, he's wanting to excel in being faithful to God and so keeping careful books, um, but, uh, but it also causes this deep antagonism. And so what these political leaders try to do is that they try to find a way of removing Daniel. So they try to entrap him. And so what they do is that they look to try to find some error in him, some error in his, his affairs, uh, which as you know, every election cycle, people always bring out what kind of errors or faults people have had in their history. And that usually, um, places them down or removes them from the election cycle or something like that. Uh, but they couldn't find anything in Daniel. So they knew that they had to do something in regards to his convictions um, um, toward the God of Israel, toward his monotheism, um, because he worshiped the one true God in the midst of a polytheistic society. I want to apply this passage 
towards some uh, how we might think about it in uh, culturally. So before the antagonism, I want to look at this excellent spirit or this excellence. Um, Daniel's excellence is his dependence on God's spirit. And as he seeks to be faithful to God, society is blessed. Um, the Persian society, this foreign nation, this occupier, this oppressor, their nation is blessed. Um, and this is how we tend the garden. We look to God, we look to God's spirit in order to know how to, to tend the garden, to how to be cultural agents, agents of good culture. And for Daniel, his job was accounting. And so as an accountant, he sought excellence before God, and that's how he blessed society. And so society is blessed whenever we, um, if we identify as Christians and we follow Jesus, that as we look to God in his spirit, uh, in whatever task we have, in whatever work we have, whatever job we have, whatever area of life we have, is blessed. Um, and, and not only blessed in and of itself, but it's supposed to bless the nation and those around us as we seek to be faithful. And so that means whether we're accounting or plumbing or we're being lawyers or being teachers, um, being dancers, being grocery workers, whatever it is. And I was thinking that I've, if there's something good out of COVID, it's that we have understood that there are some jobs that we should consider essential. Uh, and those are grocery workers, gas attendants, uh, and, truck drivers and the like. And so these people are usually not given a lot of, uh, a lot of talk um, in Christian theology. We, you know, Christians have sometimes been blamed to focus on white collar jobs. And, uh, and the gospel is also communicated uh, not only to blue collar um, jobs, but also through blue collar jobs. And we see that um, John Krasinski's Some Good News often highlights how these grocery workers or these teachers or these families are doing good work through their families, through their grocery work, through the nursing. And so this is where we can see the gospel being articulated. Um, you know, it reminds me that uh, Julie and I, we went to uh, our tax accountant to, to figure out our taxes and whatnot. And, and they looked at how much money we made and how much money we did give to charities, um, to church, to tithe. Um, and she was quite surprised at the money that we gave. Now, I... I was cautious on wanting to give this example because I didn't want to suggest that, you know, some pride or anything like that, because I don't think that we have any pride in it. I think that we all have a commandment um, to tithe and we have that need to tithe. And I think that charities are so important to society. And so it's our ways of blessing society in very much the same way that people have blessed us. Um, and so we see the importance, but the reason I bring up the example is that in the numbers, the gospel is declared. In the accounting, in the taxes, it is still possible to declare the gospel. And so how do our numbers and how do our accounts and how do our jobs point to the God um, who is the point of our work? But, um, but not just as a platform in, in order to evangelize, but as the work in of itself, that God wants our work in and of itself to be excellent, our accounting in and of itself to be excellent, so that it might bless society. And so as we're faithful to God, it blesses society. And so this is what I think we see through Daniel, and Darius is wise enough to notice that. And probably he notices it in his pocketbook. Um, <clears throat> but this became a problem for Daniel. His excellence helped 
him excel. It helped Darius and society flourish, but it also brought deep-seated anger and antagonism. And so now I want us to look at this political antagonism. So here is verses 6 through 18. This is the second, second section. You might call it the second scene even. Uh, it's uh, what I'm entitled political antagonism if you're taking notes. And so you hear, you see here, it says they came by agreement. Now the Hebrew really isn't just that they're agreeing, it means that they're colluding, that they're coming in some kind of sham uh, agreement in order to, uh, to hatch a plan and to turn it on Daniel. And you see that it's working at all areas of society. The high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors agree. And so you see that it's not just an agreement among two people, who want to buy, but all areas in all levels of society that are trying to remove Daniel and his convictions in God. And so, uh, but what I want us to see is that it's not primarily motivated as anti-religion. Uh, these are polytheistic people. It, rather, it is primarily motivated by a desire for power. Um, to accomplish this, they have to remove Daniel. Uh, and to do that, they have to challenge where Daniel is most comp uh, compromised, his monotheism. So they have to challenge his faith. And so they're going to lay down an ultimatum in this law to say, who do you worship, God or our king? As you can see earlier, that he was, by worshiping God, he was being faithful to the king. But they're making this uh, ultimatum that he either serve God or the king. And so they're making uh, the power of the kingdom um, uh, a challenge for him. What is he to do? And you also see by this that they're not really concerned, even though this is supposed to be for the benefit of the king and the kingdom. They're calling all people to praise the king, to worship the king. Uh, is It's this pretense of the common good, but rather that it is in actuality, uh, in actuality, their desire for power. And so immediately, you see immediately that Daniel goes to pray as soon as he finds out about this. It says, when Daniel knew the document had been signed. So he probably knew something was in the works. And as soon as he finds out, he goes to pray. His prayer is an immediate response to the crisis. And he goes to give thanks in this, in this crisis, but also to plead with God. He goes not to the king, but to the king of kings, because he knows that he cannot go around the law. Now, it's interesting because Persian kings were quite lenient toward religions. Uh, they gave exemptions uh, to the tribute uh, to uh, uh, Egyptian priests um, um, in, their, in their worship of Maoth. Uh, and you also had Cyrus, who uh, the Persian king who actually called to gain to gather out of the treasury to help the Jews rebuild their temple. And so perhaps that also was a reason why they expressed their anti-Semitism later on. When it says one of these exiles from Judah um, expresses this um, anti-Semitism. And yet this law, uh, this law that they establish forbids a private act, prayer. Um, and so that's when you see that the state starts becoming totalitarian. Now, the king is quite naive. He allows it to go, and it's not until at the end when it, they, they come to him, when they caught him in this private act, and said that uh, 
that Daniel has been guilty, he's praising his God and not you, that the king finally realizes what has been at work behind all this all along. But then you start seeing that as much as Darius is trying to help Daniel, he's helpless, and that he's helpless to change the law. And I think that sometimes our political leaders are helpless before the systems that they create, um, or sometimes these leaders are simply the faces or the pawns of other people's movements and maneuvers uh, and their own power plays. So now I want to turn to reflection, cultural reflections on this very interesting passage. So I think that if we look back in history, in the hearts of men and women, we would discover that much has been done in law and in nations and society shaped by petty jealousies and by petty angers and petty grievances. Um, excellence feeds throughout the society and helps it flourish, but so does jealousy and vice. It permeates society like a yeast and it can corrode and it can erode the structure and stability and the goodness of society. In fact, that's what I think that these political leaders were doing. But I want to focus on totalitarianism, which is a popular word today, um, where totalitarianism denies the modern concept of freedom of religion and its secular counterpart, the freedom of conscience. Uh, totalitarianism was seen in fascist countries as well as Marxist countries. Uh, you see it in Hitler's Germany. You saw it in Stalin's Russia, in Mao's China, where there wasn't the freedom of thought. There wasn't the freedom of speech. And so totalitarianism is when the state exerts its power to be godlike. But this surely can't happen in a, in a liberal democracy. Um, but I think that liberal democracies are not immune to totalitarian tendencies because totalitarian tendencies tend to be in the heart. Do you like that, Liz? That nice alliteration. Now, liberal democracies uh, actually are rooted in the biblical notion that individuals have dignity and moral responsibility endowed to them by the creator. And this is how liberal democracy structured society around the individual, because they trusted that individuals not just pursue their own ends, but pursue, pursue the moral good that is given to them by God. And that's what roots and anchors their dignity and their responsibilities. Um, and it was also given to be a check against our totalitarian tendencies. Yet um, in Western countries, we have begun to see some totalitarian tendencies. But I want to say it did not start as an anti-religious motivation. Um, or I should say it didn't start out only a couple decades ago. Now, in the past five years, I'm going to be speaking about Canada in just a minute, we have seen an alarming rise of judgments in the courts and uh, bills from our Canadian government that has begun to deny freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. But it didn't start with Trudeau, as um, some people love him, some people hate him. Um, I think he's simply a politician. Uh, but the real corrosion, the real erosion started over 100, 150 years ago uh, when human nature was strictly defined by naturalism. When, when a human is simply an incidental byproduct of impersonal chance and material forces, 
dignity and moral responsibility endowed by the creator becomes nonsense. It becomes superfluous. It becomes maybe a private belief, but not a way to run your country. And so this erosion of the biblical concept of human dignity and responsibility gives way to totalitarian tendencies. The checks and balances are no longer there. It removes seeing God's law as standing over the state and its laws. So now the modern law of the state begins to be used as the moral law. This is being used to deny freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. Now, I can give numerous examples in Canada in the past five years, and I don't know how it is in your own country. I know that uh, there are several countries being represented here, which is wonderful. But I just wanted to give some examples through Canada uh, as, as a way. I think that being particular helps us sometimes apply it universally. Uh, and so you have to start with the particular. But in Canada, uh, MPs, members of parliament, basically are political representatives of the people. Uh, in three, and I believe I just heard all four major parties will not allow an MP to disagree with uh, abortion, um, uh, late-term abortion. And so this is quite surprising that one who is a politician cannot disagree with this as, um, as a belief as a part of their platform. Or you have Trinity Western, which is a private Christian university, and it was denied its law school simply because it had a contract, a mandatory contract, albeit, but a mandatory contract for those who wanted to attend Trinity Western uh, that they had to sign to say that sex um, was only allowed, um, or they, they asked the, the, the students um, only see uh, sex as right, good and right, within a heterosexual marriage, a monogamous heterosexual marriage. And because of that, Trinity Western was denied a law school in Canada. Uh, not only federally, but across the provinces, it was denied. And so if one graduate, graduated from Trinity as a lawyer, they would not um, be able to practice because they were said to not be able to represent other people's beliefs, uh, which is an irony because it denies the religious freedoms that Trinity Western is, should, should have. Uh, you also have uh, Delta Hospice Society, where um, they're a private organization, not a Christian one, but they do not, uh, allow for medical assistance in dying. It's where people, it's palliative care, where people are allowed to die um, in, in natural course. Uh, but the government has just denied funding to this Delta Hospice Society because they do not, um, they do not allow for medical assistance in dying. And so, uh, and then of course, most famously, which I'll get to later, is Jordan Peterson uh, stood against Bill C-16 in Canada. Which, uh, which basically asserted um, gender identity and gender um, uh, expression as a part of a human right. And, and as a part of that bill and, and within the Ontario Human Rights Commission, that, uh, that one is compelled to speak in, or compelled to address somebody by the gender pronoun that they um, designate themselves to be. And so it's illegal that one can be fined or lose their job if they are, if they don't do this. And so Jordan Peterson said that this was compelled speech and that it, when we deny the freedom of speech, we deny the freedom of conscience um, and the freedom of thought. And so he said that he felt that Canada was moving in a totalitarian uh, way in this regard. 
Now we can talk about that later, but this is, you see totalitarian tendencies happening in Western liberal democracies. Uh, not because I think that people are intentionally anti-religious, though I think they are, but I think that is actually, uh, it was eroded by uh, the changing view of human nature through naturalism. So where does this all headed? How are we, what are we to face, um, whether we're in Canada or in own countries? How are we to think about uh, God's verdict? And that's the last section I want to turn to. So all I want to point out here, uh, there's a few things, but uh, I want to look at the word lions. You know, the den of lions, we love to draw lions when, or children love to draw lions. I don't draw lions at all. <laughs> Um, but my daughter loves to make claymation um, lions and pigs and things. But for this story, uh, you know, Persians and other ancient cultures were known for exotic forms of execution. And one of them were physical lions. They would put them in a pit and they would have these lions and they would put uh, someone who was accused uh, and, and seemingly guilty thrown into the pit of lions. But this wasn't the final sentence. The final sentence would be by the gods. And so if someone survived the night with the lions or some other form, then the gods would have acquitted this person. Um, and if the person was acquitted, then it means that the accusers would be considered false accusers. And so that's what's happening here. And so that's why Darius goes to his house. Um, he went to his house and he, he fasted because he wondered if Daniel would be acquitted by his God. And it seems that he runs at the break of day uh, to this den and he finds that Daniel is living. And so Daniel is acquitted. But uh, the other thing about lions, before we get to uh, the accusers who are tossed in, uh, is that I believe that because lions were such a common form of execution or was because, um, or was a form of execution, that this lions became a figurative word for, um, for God's people. And so it shows up as foreign nations or rebellious nations. Lions represent rebellious nations or enemies of God or enemies of God's people. And so you have in Psalm 57, verse 4, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Or you see in Jeremiah 50, verse 17, Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Zephaniah 3, verse 3, Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. And then lastly, or uh, lastly in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 15, the lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Now that's an interesting passage considering that faithfulness leads to the flourishing of the land, but lions lead to the desolation of a society. And then even Paul spoke of him, himself in this way in the New Testament when he speaks of Alexander the coppersmith, tend to do me harm. And he strongly opposed the gospel message to the Gentiles. Everyone abandoned Paul. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me 
writes Paul, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what will God do for Daniel? Which is really what will God do for his people? Because lions is figurative, it speaks of Daniel in a specific situation where he faces literal lions. Also becomes figurative of how we might understand how might we be among a nation that is rebellion, rebelling against God. Will God protect us? Will God deliver us? Will God vindicate us if we are faithful to him? And you see that Daniel is vindicated. And when Daniel is vindicated, he says that uh, he has been faithful to God and faithful to the king. And as we saw earlier, his faithfulness to God is faithfulness to the king. So this reveals that if God has vindicated him, that his accusers are guilty and they are tossed in into the den of lions. Now, since this is also figurative at work, it's not just that the lions attack them, but it represents that nations who rebel against God will devour each other. This is what it represents. Um, and so I want to look at um, the accusers and then God's people in this. Okay, so first um, I want to look at the accusers before looking at God's people. Now their sentence that they are tossed into the den of lions is proverbial. The very trap they set is the one they fall into. It's like Haman who gets to be hung from his own gallows. It was supposed to be against Mordecai and the Jewish people. And so what this really shows us even culturally is that when you play the power game, when you play the political power game, it can also cut against you. And as soon as you start vying for power, you better watch your back. We learned that from the house of cards. Everyone is devouring each other. And Paul says in Romans 1 that when we exchange the truth of the creator for a lie, then God will hand us over. He will give us over. And, we, and then Paul starts talking about how we start devouring ourselves. We envy, we strive against each other. We harm each other. And so this is this devouring. When we rebel against God's standards and against his loving purposes, we begin to devour one another. Now, I just want to have a note before I continue on that point, is that, that uh, this story is not a pro-Israelite propaganda, that those who, um, that if you're in God's team, that you're going to be victorious, and those who are uh, Persian or Egyptian or Babylonian um, will, will be devoured. Uh, rather, uh, you find that Israel is just as guilty of playing the political power game as uh, Syria and Persia and Babylon were. Uh, so Israel called for a king. And when they called for a king, God said, well, um, if you wanna be like the other nations, then the, 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 the king is going to grind you under the hooves of horses and the wheels of chariots. And then Israel is in, is in exile because they were trying to make political alliances uh, and depend on those political alliances rather than God as their security with Egypt and Assyria. And this is why Israel and then Judah were exiled. And so that Daniel is in the midst of this exile. Um, it doesn't, it's not a tip to the hat that Israel should start playing the political game again. And in fact, you see that Daniel uh, is serving this foreign occupier. 
this foreign uh, foreign nation to bless their society by being faithful to God. He's blessing this foreign nation, and so all of it cuts against the kind of tribalistic view. And so I want that to be clear for us if we call ourselves Christians that we should not try to try to uh, get into the political power game lest we be devoured by it. But to be devoured um, is to devour one another. So uh, I want to go back to Jordan Peterson and his comments about compelled speech. Now, he was at, um, at one of his protests. Um, uh, well, prior to that is that Jordan Peterson said that this Bill C-16, which is compelling speech in order to, um, to remove bullying of the LGBTQ community, which, um, which I affirm there should be no bullying of the LGBTQ community, but Peterson said that this bill would end up um, uh, hurting the trans community in the long run. And uh, one person at his protest just scoffed at him. But what I think he's saying is, is quite biblical. And what it is is that when the government starts silencing the freedom of speech in one area, then it begins to have the power in other areas. Just for an example, there was a student that came to us and uh, they identified as non-binary. Uh, one of my favorite students we've ever had. And we were discussing, uh, the, the person asked, does God exist? Um, in, you know, as, as we talked about uh, their relationship to, to God or the idea of God, um, their story came up. And, and they were telling me their story. And uh, in the midst of it, it caused me to ask a question. And it seems innocuous, but it's actually a quite controversial question to ask. And I said, well, how do you see the relationship between sex and gender? And they paused and they said, well, I actually think there is a relationship between sex and gender, but I would never tell my friends. I would be excommunicated um, from, my, from my friends if I even talked about this. The reason the person came to Labrie is because they felt that they couldn't go to the church to ask questions and they couldn't go to their own friends within the LGBTQ community to ask their questions. They couldn't. Uh, and so you find that totalitarianism that starts at the top can work its way through all areas of society and where silence doesn't just happen in law, but it ends up happening where uh, friends are looking over their backs at one another. And so we have to be very careful this totalitarian tendency. And that's what Peterson's talking about. He says that actually in the long run, it won't help the trans community. Um, and if you know him quite well, he's, He's actually quite affirming of the trans community. He just doesn't like trans activism, which he feels leads to totalitarianism. So now after looking at the accusers, I want to look at Daniel and God's people as my final point before I turn to the conclusion. And so Daniel's vindication as he's rescued from the den of lions points to a hope that we can hope that God would deliver us in whatever situation we might find ourselves in, in the midst of people wanting to devour us um, for standing on our convictions. However, it's not necessarily the case that God will deliver us or rescue us in this life. Um, just because Daniel was faithful and was rescued, but there were plenty of people who were faithful who were devoured um, by, by lions and others. Rather, this story points to God's ultimate vindication. Daniel, uh, like his friends in Daniel 3, uh, perhaps went to the den of lions not knowing if he would be rescued. 
uh, perhaps like his friends, he trusted in God whether he was going to be rescued from that den or not. Um, and so as the author of Hebrew points out, some faithful people are rescued and some are not. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews writes, And what more shall I say? This is, he just accounted the cloud of witnesses. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead from, um, by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And he continues on. And so you see that some people were faithful and rescued, some were faithful and not. But the author in Hebrews points that they looked to the better life after resurrection. That was their hope, that God may not vindicate them immediately, but he would ultimately vindicate um, them and vindicate his own name. And so their hope uh, in Hebrews 11 points to this Old Testament hope of a general resurrection, that there would be a better life after the general resurrection. So how much more hope we have now as Christians? We trust in the one who has overcome the grave um, by his resurrection, namely Jesus. So it's amazing what you have a shadowy hope in Daniel and what you, or what you have as a shadowy hope of, um, that Daniel had, but also what you had in type in Daniel in his facing the den of lions, we see an actual fact in Jesus himself. Uh, uh, Golden Gay is, uh, wrote a wonderful commentary on Daniel, and he wrote uh, this of, of, of um, this point I'm having now. The first Christians saw this story of Daniel recapitulate the story of Jesus. He too is the victim of conspiracy and betrayal from people whose position is threatened by him and who seek occasion to manipulate higher authorities in executing him professing that they have no king but Caesar. They too will eventually pay for their hostility, along with their children. He too is arrested at his customary place of prayer. These higher authorities too find no fault in him and labor to free him, but are reminded that the law forbids it. He too has to rely on God to deliver him as his tomb is sealed. Ironically, he actually dies. An injury can be found on him after he comes back from the dead. More extraordinary is it then that very early at sunrise, he too is discovered to be alive after all. It's amazing that last final point that Darius is like the disciples of Jesus running to the tomb to see if God would vindicate his faithfulness. And so the author of Hebrews points beyond the cloud of witnesses and calls that that community which was suffering persecution um, and even death, because they had to choose between Caesar and God. Uh, and that the Hebrew author, um, the author of Hebrews, tells them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for that joy was, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And that's really the message I have for us. Let us not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus. And so in conclusion, I just want to give very five quick points, bullet points. This is very unusual for me. Five mm-hmm. bullet points for a way forward. So first, I want to say, let's not, let's not assume that all our culture is lost. Some Christians in Canada think that it's lost. Christians have no more voice. We just need to hide. We need to bunker in. Uh, Rod Dreyer seems to write like that um, uh, in his Benedict Option, uh, talking about bunkering in and trying to be faithful in the bunker. I just want to say, let's not think that it's as bad as it could be. It can be much worse. I've been reading lots of World War II uh, literature. It can be far worse. And so we need to not abdicate the voice that we still have. We still have a voice in society, and we need to not be afraid. We need to speak while we still have time. We need to speak while there's still daylight. Second, the first step is prayer, not political strategy. Um, Now, politics is good, but the first thing that Daniel did was to go to the king of kings, um, and not to the law, not to anything else, but in prayer, because prayer is powerful, and it's real, and God is active. Third, we need to seek excellence so that our society may flourish, Um, and so that in whatever you do, whether it's plumbing or teaching, uh, whether you're pastor, whether you're um, stay at home, we're all staying at home right now, but whatever you do and whatever task you find yourself, seek to be excellent to the glory of God and for the sake of society, wherever you find yourself, not just for the sake of Christians, but for society. Fourth, take courage and seek wise friends. We need one another, and we have to remember that while the state can punish The state cannot give us um, eternal life. The state cannot vindicate in the ultimate way. And so we need to take courage in the one who can raise us from the dead, who can vindicate us, and who will um, vindicate us as we stand before him in Jesus. And so the last point, number five, is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and fix your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Okay, so that's the end of my talk. Now, I would love to have uh, any questions that you might have. Let's try to make this as as, um, ordinary as possible in asking questions, and I will try to do my best in responding. So I'll hand it over to Liz, who will moderate. The first question that I'm seeing here is from Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. And the question is, how do we reconcile the punishment for the accuser's children and wives by corporate solidarity with death of innocent children. Well, okay. Uh, so let, I'm going to ask for a, um, a refresher, but I'm going to answer the first part of that. Just how do we square the death of the wives and the children with the people, with the men who are the accusers? Let me just start with that because that's complicated enough. Uh, now, uh, ancient codes, uh, often but not always, we do find it even in the Bible. Uh, but you, um, in Numbers and in elsewhere, where you have 
um, if, the, if the husbands or the fathers are found to be guilty, they're executed and so are their families. And I believe that that's because, and also in other ancient codes, because the man was the source of life for these people. And so if you killed the man, then you would actually leave them destitute. And perhaps they felt that it would be worse than death. Um, and so there wasn't the social networks or the systems in place that we have now. Uh, and so I believe that was part of the way. But there you also see in the Mosaic Law where it will say that, um, uh, that a, pun a person will be punished for their, own, for their own sin or their own crime rather than everyone else. And then you even have a promise in Isaiah where it says that, uh, is it Isaiah or is it Jeremiah? Uh, I believe it might be Jeremiah 31. But anyway, uh, it says that people will no longer be punished for the sins of the father, but will be punished for their own. And it's a reference to this. And so what you have is basically uh, the, um, the Persian king is also tossing in the wives and the children so that they may not suffer a life worse, um, a, um, a loss worse than death, which would be a destitution. Uh, and there were no provisions, apparently. Now, what's the second part of the question? How does it relate to the innocent? Uh, with uh, corporate solidarity with the death of innocent children. I don't know. Uh, do you want to say more? Does, Lindsay, do you want to say more? Um, I mean, I feel like you... I don't know. I. It's my my Western individualistic brain always struggles with this idea that the man uh, or the head of the family that essentially what their fate is determines the fate of everyone else in the family. Um, right. And so these passages are throughout the Old Testament and this is not new that the children or the wives of like this, people are swallowed up, you know, a couple books before. I just struggle with it all the time um, and understanding God's justice is much bigger than my cultural understanding of what is fair. Um, but I think about how, like, how do you explain this passage to someone and say, but God is just, but he's also merciful and loving. Uh, if that made sense. Yeah, it makes great sense. Um, and so, uh, you know, Jesus even speaks about how, um, how the Pharisees are the children of the devil. He speaks of it in that way. And, and you can see that those who are children of the devil, who follow in rebellion um, against God, will suffer their fate. And so their progeny is not necessarily earthly fathers and earthly mothers, but uh, the progeny of the one in whom they look to. Uh, and so they will suffer the fate of those who turn to God or who turn away from God and face that judgment. Now, we will all stand as individuals um, before God in that judgment. Um, and it will be like, are we a child of God or are we not? And so, uh, so there is, and then I should also say that even though these children and their wives suffered this death, this uh, corporate death, uh, isn't their final execution necessarily, that they as individuals will stand before God. Um, but we can be so individualistic in the West that uh, we forget that there actually are consequences that families suffer for one person's choice. Societies suffer for community's choices. And so um, we as a society in Canada 
um, are suffering from a few people's decisions. Uh, and so uh, even though it seems quite barbaric, I think that it's, it's uh, highlighting something that we neglect to understand that we are actually more corporate than we might imagine. Uh, and so we do suffer consequences that other people made. And so these wives and these children have suffered them. Um, it seemed like Brett wanted to sort of follow up on that with a comment he picked me. So maybe I'll just unmute you, Brett. And you can, you can yes, I was just saying that seeing the lion as um, a type of the nations, uh, that would back up your, what you just said, uh, Clark, that uh, um, that the whole of society suffers when there is uh, um, uh, uh, falsehood and uh, iniquity. And Lindsay, I thought, oh, when you hear the kids getting thrown in. But when you see it in, in the wider picture, um, yes, everybody does suffer when others, uh, when leadership makes wrong decisions. Yeah, and in fact, I see uh, children suffering. Oh, I shouldn't. I think our culture, I think the most vulnerable people in our society are children because they can't represent themselves and there are decisions being made uh, in the laws and in the laws of our land that are actually making children more vulnerable. Uh, and and uh, one of them is there are some good reasons for it, but it also has consequences where the law in Canada no longer sees a child as a um, I'm sorry, no longer sees the parents as biological parents, but as legal parents. And so what that does is it removes the natural institution of the family and, and makes it a legal institution, which means that, there's, that the law can get in between the parent and the child. And we have seen that. Uh, we've seen that very recently. And so uh, there's, there's another case where we see a modern example of other people suffering um, from other people's decisions. Thanks, Clark. Um, I'm going to get to David here who raised his hand. So, David, you can unmute yourself if you can figure out how I can do it. Oh, it looks like you're unmuted already. Okay, good. Well, greetings, everybody. Thanks for everything. Um, just a little comment on the earlier question. Um, I, I know elsewhere in Scripture there is this kind of corporate punishment, but uh, this was Darius's uh, decision not God's decision to throw everybody in the lion's den. That's true. So that's a little, little nuance there. But I, have, but I have a question. So shall I get to that? Go ahead. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I was just thinking about uh, uh, Daniel, and I kind of like Daniel's way of just going about his day. And uh, he just uh, seems to just keep going that way. And... Uh, which I kind of find appealing. It reminds me of Sophie Shaw and the, the story of Sophie Shaw. <clears throat> but the question comes to uh, what does one do when the society becomes so unacceptable? So you could, I could think anyway, of Germany, 1943, 1944, and uh, people are still being held accountable for doing the most innocuous jobs because they were aiding and abetting uh, an, an, an evil uh, system. So uh, that's sort of part of the thinking. And with that is Daniel actually disobeys the law in that he continues with his normal way of being. 
But anyway, the question is, what do you do when the society is, let's, if I can say it this way, is just evil, and anything one does is encouraging or facilitating that? Yeah, thank you for that question, David. You know, uh, it is, it's something that's very difficult for us to try to figure out how might we live as Christians wisely to engage the environment of society without being ensnared by its idolatry. Mm. And sometimes a society can seem so ensnared by idolatry, you don't know where to turn. Uh, now, Daniel had no other where to turn except through civil disobedience. I do believe that as Christians, and in fact, I think as citizens, um, because I do believe that citizens are endowed uh, with dignity and moral responsibilities that are not given by the government, but are given by God, that we are to abide by a higher law and by the one who stands over that law. Because, um, uh, so the state may be able to punish, but it can't vindicate, as I said earlier. And so I do believe that the Christian sometimes gets put in a place where they must have civil disobedience. Right. And now they need to be wise in how they do that. And there were times where Daniel appealed to the king, uh, as Paul did um, in Rome. But you also have, uh, you know, maybe uh, Daniel using wise words. Uh, and you find ways of saying, okay, how might I do this? Now you have the Tin Booms in Harlem, Netherlands, and they felt, you know, uh, the Germans are doing wrong, uh, who have occupied Holland at that time, and they are sending the Jews off uh, to these camps. And so they started hiding the Jews in, uh, in, that, in the watchmaker house. Uh, and they knew that they were doing it illegally, and, they, um, and Corey Ten Boom actually discusses how, how they tried to neg negotiate that. And they felt that they were doing God's law, and that if they were to be punished, then they would be punished. But they didn't feel that they were doing wrong, even though mm. it is difficult to know is, you know, do you, uh, are we, I mean, I, it seems wise to be a moral absolutist where uh, if someone asks you if you're, should you lie if you're hiding some Jews and you say, uh, yes, <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, but I do believe that God will not judge you for, you know, uh, um, that you should seek to tell the truth, but maybe you can try to work out another way of civilly disobeying without disobeying God's laws, um, not to flaunt. But, you know, this is, is too, it's tricky. I don't really know exactly yeah, yeah, how yeah. to be wise. It is tricky. Um, you know, at one point, God sends, asks, who will be a lying spirit for me? Do you remember that mm -hmm. passing? Yeah. So the, the, I, think, I think the ten booms actually said something like, oh, they're hiding under the rug, so they wouldn't actually technically tell a lie. But I think right, that's... Right, exactly. Pardon? That's right. They're under the rug. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, Corey would lie, but it was Betsy who wouldn't lie, I think. Okay. Uh, or it was one of the sisters who just wouldn't lie. And in fact, the reason, one of the reasons that they got caught is because she was telling the truth, but they disagreed in the house on if they should lie or not. And so she kept telling the truth, but they, the Corey and, uh, and the others would lie because they felt justified to do so. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, there was one woman who felt that, no, I need to be obedient to God's laws no matter what. Uh, and even if it means the loss of their lives and my execution, at least I've been faithful to God from beginning to end. But I think it is a difficult situation to know exactly 
how to be in those situations. Right. And then how we actually act. I think there's always an action that one can take. So it's not that, you know, this first point you made or don't assume the culture is lost. Don't assume the culture is totally lost. Yeah. Which isn't the same thing as uh, saying there's, um, I never can do nothing. I, I hate double negatives, but there's always something to do, which may bring about my own demise. Thanks, Thank Dan. you. Thanks, David. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to uh, Abigail. She had a comment she wanted to make. Okay. Hi. For, hey. Thanks, Liz, and thanks, Clark, for doing this. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to make a comment on Clark when you mentioned that none of the political parties are able to stand against um, abortion. And no, I said none of the major parties. None of the major parties. Okay, so I've been following one of the um, uh, conservative party uh, that guys that are running for the conservative leadership. Derek Sloan, and um, he actually is standing up against abortion, which is really um, commendable. Right. He answered no to the question, are there any circumstances under which you believe a woman should have access to abortion? And he said no. So, okay. Is he, a, is he an MP or is he running? He's an MP in Ontario. Okay. And he's running. Well, oh, he's Except there's some issues that uh, he was accused of calling uh, calling Tam, Dr. Tam. You know, he's he's been accused of being racist because he doesn't agree with some of the things she said. So he may be. That's good to clarify. Thank you for that. I wasn't, I only heard it just the other day that um, well, those in the conservative party uh, could not affirm abortion. I had not heard that before. I had thought, I know the Green Party, the Liberal Party and the NDP but I haven't known about the conservative, but someone mentioned it just the other day. And so yeah. that's why I said three to four parties. Well, he's getting <laughs> of course, a lot there's of lots smaller parties. Yeah, he's getting a lot of flack even within the conservative party. But um, I also wanted to say um, that I've been following some of the political things going on and it can get pretty depressing. So what you've said has been encouraging to me today. Number one, just about the first thing we need to do is pray and give it yeah. to God. And what Daniel actually did is he gave thanks. That's right. He you know, thanks. he didn't like, oh, God, well, you know, our country, which is maybe part of it, but he bowed down three times a day and gave thanks. Yes. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, I really appreciate all of you coming today, and we do hope to do this again in two weeks. Um, I may be speaking again, we'll see. Um, but, uh, but please come and so glad that you made it today and glad that uh, we can have some kind of communal feeling in the midst of this stay at home stuff. And, uh, and so I'm thankful that, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, that Daniel was able to articulate the gospel through even his accounting. And I think that even through Zoom technology, we can declare the gospel. And, uh, and I'm thankful for that. So anyway, so thanks for coming and uh, please join us in two weeks.